0: This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Unspoken Agreements podcast. I'm your host, Adam Esco. Before we get to this week's very, very inspiring guest, Lisa Marie. I'm going to share a bit about myself. For those of you who do not know me, I am a life coach and business strategist, and I get to work with people that generally come to me feeling frustrated with work, feeling just unfulfilled, loss of passion, loss of energy, and want to do something else with the rest of their life. something I led myself through, and it's now something that I help people find what it is that lights them up and how to take that passion and make it into a career and a business. And so if this is something that speaks to you, I encourage you to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. I also want to thank Truth Work Media for their amazing help with this podcast. They are the production team behind the curtains and I love working with them. So if podcasting is something you want to get into, I encourage you to check out their link in the show notes and reach out to them. They are amazing. So things are going to be a little bit different this week. Talking with Lisa Marie, this is not a conversation that I get to have too much of. This is her story about abuse, about isolation, about depression, about PTSD. And she shares very vulnerably uh, her story of what happened with her ex-husband who tried to murder her. And she talks about what happened and what life was like before, what happened during the event very openly, and what her life has been like afterwards. Um, So this is a very candid discussion. It was a long discussion. And like any good story, it has a beginning, middle, and an end. So we decided to separate this story into three separate parts. So this will be the first part into... Lisa Marie's life, and I am so grateful that she was able to come on the podcast and be such an inspiration to me and so many people out there. So without further ado, Lisa Marie. It is my great pleasure and honestly, the word that came to my mind, my honor to be talking with Lisa Marie today. Lise Marie, thank you for taking the time to be here on the podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. And I am so excited for this opportunity. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm just really happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we were down to the last, we'll, we'll just say the la- the wire here, going through some techno- technical difficulties and trying to figure out how we can, can connect. Uh, You and I are not in the same location. We're basically on a four-hour difference in terms of time frame, you being in Alaska, me being in the D.C. area. So very cool that you had a light bulb moment and then we were able to figure out how to to work through it.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And isn't it just amazing that we can connect from literally across the country and continent? I just love it. It's amazing.
0: You (laughs) know what's funny? That brings me back to how we really connected for the first time, which was in Atlanta, at the David Nagel event, Art of Success, um, that seemed, I don't know if you believe in fate. I mean, when I think of a moment like that, I'm like, that was strange how you and I were able to sit at the same table during lunch. And then I happen, I don't know who was overheard who, but basically the very first time I met you, you were able to share a lot of your story with me. Do you remember what happened with that?
1: Yeah that event in general for me was very synchronistic. Um, I made a lot of connections that felt that way and meeting you was definitely one of them. And, um, yeah, I, I actually at that event made a decision that I was going to start introducing myself as someone that had a message around domestic violence. Um, and that went back to my personal history and a complicated tale, which I'm sure we'll get into, but, um, But I was really stepping outside of my comfort zone and just being open and vulnerable around that because that was true to how I wanted to show up. And what an awesome uh, community of people to take that step and do that. Yeah. in the middle of all of that I just I made connections just like you where it was just like oh my gosh I feel like yeah. you were part of that stepping stone in getting me closer to um to really being able to share this message so yeah. yeah
0: I really appreciate that feedback yeah you get into this this place where there's people that are interested in personal development and growing themselves to be the best selves they could be and you just feel like you could you could talk about anything. Like every everywhere you go, there's a safe space to really grow, to really share. And then for me, getting to listen to your story, um, to be on the receiving end was, like I said, an, really an honor that you felt like you could share that with me. And I then was like, we gotta we gotta fire the mics and share this with with other people. So so let's go do it. You know, so we're we're gonna get into Lisa Marie's story and. Um, She's got experience with uh, domestic abuse and specifically survived a murder attempt by her ex-husband. But before we do that, Lisa Marie, can you talk to me a little bit about what your childhood was like, uh, the person you were, the thoughts you had, uh, so we get a sense of, of really who you are?
1: Yeah, Um, so I was raised essentially uh, by a single mom and she was a Montessori teacher and I have one older brother uh, by by biology. I actually have step-siblings that came in much later. but So it was the three of us because my parents divorced when I was two years old um, and we moved out of state. So I saw my dad, but it was just mostly my mom, my brother and I And um, it was an environment of very high stress. My mom was under a lot of stress. She was under a lot of pressure. She didn't have a a good network of support, not a lot of family support. She was making limited money as a teacher. And so things were uh, challenging in the home for sure. But one of the things, one of the greatest gifts that she gave to me was that she was constantly working on herself. Mm -hmm. So she always encouraged me to ask questions about what was going on with myself and why I was feeling certain ways or why I was making certain decisions. And then as I got older and I was showing some signs of depression, which I mean by older, I mean like before my teenage years, um, I was encouraged to go to counseling um, I was involved in some personal development work, uh, particularly landmark education as a child. Um, I was an avid reader um, around like all these questions and I even had the sense as a child that I wanted to go to college and get a psychology degree and I actually ended up doing just that. So so it was it was an interesting um, combination of um, stress and there was definitely, um, some emotional abuse, there was some physical abuse in my home. There were some really difficult, challenging uh, occurrences that were going on. And um, and I really think that it's important to to honor and to recognize that people don't necessarily know what abuse is. And that's one of the things that I'm learning now is that things that I thought were just things that happened were actually very detrimental to my development and and they are all things that can, can be overcome. But if there's no awareness around them actually being harmful, <laughs> mm. then, then that's really problematic in being able to, like you said, step into who we are and be our greatest selves. So that's one of the things that I'm really focusing on now is that awareness and that education.
0: When you talk about uh, your mom and having memories of having her really trying to grow herself so what specific things do you remember that she was doing in order to develop herself
1: oh my goodness um she was a voracious reader she was involved in a lot of structured development work um landmark education was a really big part of our home mm-hmm. which is like it's like a seminar series and it focuses on you know um Stepping into your full potential and really being authentic, and um, and she actually started her personal uh, personal development journey well before I was born, but I think it kicked into high gear when the marriage ended, and she stepped out into the unknown, literally. She literally had no plan. Mm. She picked up her two kids and left the state because she felt that was the only way she was going to emotionally survive the divorce. Mm. She had to get physical distance and she was really, really passionate about children. And so she decided to Get a, a certification as a Montessori teacher, but she had no wow. idea how she was gonna do that. So she like had, she literally did all of the things that, you know, like trusting in the unknown and just going for it, making the decision. Um, and so and she and she loved her career. She was a, a Montessori teacher for 25 years, brilliant teacher, just an amazing woman in the classroom. And um, and so it just, it all kind of came together. But, um, but yeah, so she was a living example, but in and of that, her, that as well, because she lacked full awareness because her home was very abusive. And so even though our home was a drastic improvement to the influences that she had in her life, as a child. there were still, as a child, there were still things that were occurring in our home that I now know were, I mean, I have, I have struggled with depression and anxiety for most of my life and I'm actually diagnosed with complex PTSD. And there, there's a, that's a, a, there's a lot that's happened that, that culminated in that, of course, but certainly, um, a lack of certainty and a lack of feeling of safety in the home, whether it was emotional or physical, um, influences, uh, was part of that, um, that, that, culminated to that experience for me and those recurring, you know, issues. So, so yeah, so it was both and, you yeah. know, and I think that for most of us, it really is. I know for me, it is. It's both and all the time. So.
0: Yeah. And so, and I remember you sharing with me before when the mics were off that you grew up in Idaho, correct?
1: I did. Yes. Okay. Well, no, oh, I, was, I was, I I was, Yeah. I was born in Idaho. Idaho. And then when I was two, we left. And then I was mainly raised in Seattle, Washington area.
0: Yeah. And that's when you moved with your mom and your brother, where did you move at that point?
1: So I was born in Idaho. And then when I was two, my parents divorced. And that's when we left Idaho. And my dad's actually still in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And then we briefly moved to California when my mom got her certification. And then we moved to Seattle. And I was there until I was fourteen, and then when I was fourteen, my mom got remarried, mm-hmm. and he was a third-generation Alaskan, and he moved all of us up to Fairbanks, Alaska.
0: Well, what was that like for you? You're, you're fourteen years old. You're just getting into high school. You know, you're, you've got friends. You're, you're in a situation you've been stable for a while. What was that like to just pick up and go to Fairbanks? Population? I- of, you know how many people are in Fairbanks?
1: Yeah, it was about eighty thousand then. It's it's mm. it's over a hundred thousand now. Okay. Um, it's very isolated, and the weather is extreme. is very extreme here. We've got the twenty four hours of dark and the shortest day of the year. Well, wow. technically, it's two hours of light. But um, and then in the summer, we've got the twenty four hours of of light, and and like today, it's thirty five below zero outside Fahrenheit. Wow. So yeah. it's very extreme. Um, and it, we moved in the middle of December, and my first experience of Fairbanks yeah. was 65 below zero. <laughs> Gosh, I can't it. And it was just in the middle of nowhere. And let me tell you, I was not a happy teenager. I mean,
0: I mean <laughs> anger to the max. Like, what, is, you know, this is survival at its core, you know. Like- you're trying to yeah. figure it out. You don't know anybody. It's freezing. You can't go outside. It's dark. What do you do? Oh, What's it like?
1: Oh, gosh. I, you know, that first six months, we um we lived in a very small apartment because they were home shopping. They didn't want to try to rush that. And so we were living in a very small apartment. And at that point, my stepsister had joined us. She was also 14. And so we had two 14-year-old girls sharing a bedroom. Oh. Wow. <laughs> And uh, we went to a very small private school for that semester, and I honestly don't remember that semester very well. Um, I was actually finishing up my eighth grade year, and then um, I started high school the next year, and I joined a public school which had about 1,200 students. And though I was terrified by walking into that school and not knowing a soul, um, I I made Incredible lasting friendships and high school for me was a very positive experience, and so I'm still friends though with many of the, the the people that I associated with in high school. So I had kind of an unusual high school experience. I think the population in Fairbanks is a very unique population. I think the people here connect uh, at a very um, authentic and deep level mm-hmm. compared to most other places, and so it's one of the greatest gifts about being here. But the um, the 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 external <laughs> challenges are very wow. difficult. It is not for the faint of heart, for sure. Yeah.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think people there connect so deeply, even though it seems like there might be a lot of isolation in just the vastness of the land and the how few people there are? in comparison to how, how large the space is.
1: Well, you know, and Fairbanks is, is unique to Anchorage as well. So Anchorage is a seven-hour drive away, and it has about 350,000 people. And it's, so it's considered a city. We're kind of considered a town. I think Fairbanks being in the middle of the interior with the, the level of extreme with the light and the cold uh, survival is literally a daily thought. Um, we also have a lot of wildlife, so we have moose that freely roam, and we have bear that also will venture into populated areas. And so, it's it's something that we're always thinking about. But m- mainly, it's the cold. The cold is lethal. It has to be respected. And so, in this community, if your car breaks down, it's going to be five minutes if there's traffic going by that somebody's going to stop and find out if you're okay. Wow. Because if it's 60 below, potentially, you know, it can be lethal within 30 minutes depending on what the circumstances are. So it, it creates this really unique sense of um, watching out for each other all the time. And in like a competent way, like there's not fear about these things. It's like these people are very comfortable and they trust themselves to be able to handle this, but they know they can't depend only on themselves. Wow. We, we have to depend on each other to survive. So uh, I think that's a huge element. And then I think also um, people come up here, uh, well, at least they did, and maybe they still are. They would come up here to get away from the crowds and to be able to focus on nature mm-hmm. and space and quiet, and so I think that the people that were drawn to this community, especially given how extreme the living conditions are, um, had a very strong uh, value for individuality. Mm-hmm. And so, what I found in the high school, because um, I came from a, a little a little area outside of Seattle called Issaquah, Washington, upper middle class, almost all white, um, very kind of well to do little community there. And very competitive. And then coming here, people were like very interested in their differences. Like where conformity was really a focus I felt there, fitting in and like looking a certain way, being a certain way, keeping up with the Joneses. Here, people didn't care who the Joneses were. Yeah. Like they just were like, I mean, the Joneses are cool, but like, I'm going to do my own thing, and you're going to do your own thing, and that's great. Like you know, yeah. so it was a really different culture, um, and it definitely helped shape me into who who I feel I am today. I'm I've got pieces of both for sure. Wow,
0: that's wonderful. Uh, it really painted a, a really great picture there, where you could visualize people respecting and almost appreciating their own individuality the isolation what they what they're getting from that from nature from their faith what have you but also like you said I love how you put it respecting the nature respecting the cold respecting the wildlife almost in a terms of survival and having empathy for others because it is something that needs to be respected so so much
1: Absolutely, and and yeah, empathy, yeah, and connection. Um, it becomes kind of an innate, an innate filter that that we hold.
0: So I want to fast forward a little bit, where you go through college. I know you get a psychology degree, um, a BA in psychology uh, with gender and women's studies concentration. And then I want to fast forward to how you got in your relationship with your ex-husband. Can you walk us through what that was like, that time in your life for you?
1: Gosh, yeah. I thought I was like, I, I was just pumped. I, had, <laughs> I was um, about 29, 30 years old and I had gotten into a management position, um, which as anyone who's tried to do that. I came in from outside and I just got this opportunity. I wasn't promoted in from inside. So they trusted me enough, this company, and it was um, Holland America Princess Alaska, which they handle all of the motor coach tours in interior Alaska and Yukon. Mm-hmm. And so I was brought on the team as an assistant manager with no professional experience in that capacity, lots of personal experience and leadership. So they took a risk on me. And and I excelled. I did really well. I really loved it. I loved the team. It was a team of ten, um, and we, as a team of ten managers year round, we uh, handled an operation of a, a couple hundred employees that were doing all different kinds of of, of um, activities to make this this whole experience work for these people that were coming up to Alaska for their dream vacation, right? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I was like, I'm I'm headed in the right direction and um, I had great friends. Um, I was, you know, uh, an avid Latin dancer at the time, it's one of my passions and there was a great dance community here, which I know you think, Latin dance so hot time. <laughs> and so there was like 30 of us that were dancing like five nights a week, it was so much fun. And so I just thought that, you know, life was grand. I was having a great time. And uh, I met my uh, now ex-husband, but I met him for the first time when I was Latin dancing. That's how I met him.
0: And from there, you were drawn to him. Uh, you connected. What was that early time like in in your relationship?
1: Well you know it's, it's interesting because my very first thought he was he, he is very handsome, but when I saw him that first time, I, I thought, my goodness, that man is very, very handsome. And um, but the second thought that immediately came into my mind in hindsight is 2020 20, is this guy's trouble. And so I avoided him, actually, because I could tell that he was also interested in me. And so I stayed on the opposite side of the room. And, uh, and I was just with my friends, and I was dancing, and I was having a great time. I, I mean, I feel free on the dance floor. Like, dancing for me is just this amazing, like, freeing, fun um, experience. And so I was just having a great time. And one of my really good friends at the time came up to me, and he was always trying to bring... New leads, that potential leads for dancing into our community, our dance community, and so he came out to me and he said, "You got to go ask this guy to dance because he's he clearly can move. You need to go ask him to dance so we can get him into this community."
0: I'm referring to your ex husband, and, and that's who exactly. <laughs> Gotcha. So Trouble. Like, Here we I'm go.
1: Purposefully staying on the opposite side of the room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well one dance is not gonna hurt anything, right? Mm-hmm. So I go and I ask him to do, I think we did like a like a like a merengue. Like it was a very, very basic, very, you know, respectful dance. And he um turns out, uh, was born and raised in Cuba. And he had just gotten to Alaska. He was had just finished basic training. And uh, But he was 27 years old because he had made a late decision to, to join the military. And so he starts speaking to me in Spanish. And I'm like, okay, I, I speak Spanish, right? But like, I don't know if, if, if any of the listeners out there know what Cuban Spanish is like. Um, it's very fast and there's a lot of repetition. And so I was trying to understand what he was saying and I was doing okay and I was responding. And then he stopped and he looked at me at some point and he said, you're American in English. And I was like, I am American. And he goes, oh my gosh, where did you learn to dance? I thought you were Latina.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In Yukon, Alaska too, no less, right? I know.
1: (laughs) I know. So uh, so then we just kind of continued to chat and eventually he um, asked for my number and I did give it to him. But I mean, it was a very positive, very fun interaction. Um, and um, I, I I just thought that he was extremely uh, attractive. Like I just found I was very attracted to him on a lot of different levels. Okay.
0: And so you mentioned that he was in the military uh, and he's 27. How old were you at the time when you met?
1: 29 or 30, right right in there. You know, the other thing
0: that jumped out when you said that is this sense of this guy is trouble just from being across the room without even speaking to him. Is that, can you talk more about that? Is that an intuitive sense that you were familiar with? Is that something that you're familiar with now?
1: Well, I I last, (laughs) at that time, the way that I interpreted it after I started getting to know him was that I thought that um, I could potentially fall really, really hard for this guy. Mm. Like that's how I interpreted it at the time. It was kind of like um, I, I, I've dated a lot in my life, but I've I have maintained a lot of independence, and so getting close for me is has always been a little bit of a challenge, and trusting that much has always been a little bit of a challenge. Though I can love others, I actually would describe it as having a hard time actually allowing myself to be loved. So, and I and I can say I've been very very I I've been very loved in my life. Um, I have I have been very adored and so I just feel I feel a lot of gratitude for that all the time because it's kind of like one of those things where, like, I don't know what's so special about me, but I really feel like I have this overabundance. Love. In my life. But at that time, when I thought that about him, that was my that was when after I spoke to him, I thought, you know, I think that's what it is, is that I could really fall hard for this guy. Um, ultimately, looking back with 2020 vision and um, hindsight, I would say that I sensed his deep struggles. I would say that I sensed his pain. Um, I probably related to his pain a little bit. And um, he was consciously making an effort to shape his life on a specific track at that point. And what he wanted to do was become the man that he felt was uh, the, 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 correct, the correct man, the potential man to be able to be the father and the, the husband that he felt someone else deserved. Mm -hmm. And so he had been in Miami for years and he had been just really enjoying the party life there and just got fed up with it and was like, I need to do something productive. I'm going to join the military. And then of all places, they sent him to Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. So he had a very clear goal for self-improvement and he had a cl- very clear vision and dream that he was working towards at that time. And I didn't find that out for like months. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, but um, but I but I he he's I, it turned out that he actually didn't speak English before he left Miami. Like very broken English, limited English. In the time that he was in basic training, he essentially became fluent in English. He had an accent, but his, his English was way better than my Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I was very conversational in Spanish. I had studied abroad in Costa Rica and I was very comfortable with Spanish. So I think his intelligence and his capacity for, for growth mm-hmm. um, is very, very high. And that was one of the things that I, I really admired in him the most.
0: And so you guys are dating... You're both in Fairbanks. He's stationed there and you decide to get married at at some point. Can you walk us through what that time was like? And if there was a time, a period where he had to get deployed? Was that going on during your relationship?
1: Yes, um, sure was. So he actually already had notification that he would be deployed within the year and that he was going to be stationed in Afghanistan. And he was army, um, so he would be front line. And we were dating. There was, overall, he was very supportive of my interests, of my independence. Um, He respected my career. He respected that I loved to dance. He would, even though he didn't really like partner dancing that much, he loved dancing, but he didn't like actually like salsa or anything like that. And so he would just go with me and I would dance with people and he would kind of hang out and chat and whatever. Um, uh, we had a great time together. Um, everything was very wonderful. I mean, it was, it was a, a beautiful beginning. And um, we very quickly decided to get married because we knew that he was going to deploy. And I had... Experienced long distance relationships before. And I also was friends with military wives. And so I witnessed their experience while their husbands were deployed. And I, I understood that distance is one thing. Mm-hmm. Deployment is an entirely different thing.
0: Yeah. What was going through your mind with that?
1: You know, I was really naive. You know, we always think that we're going to be the different one, like, yeah. <laughs> even though, like, I was like watching and I'm like going, okay, I'm, we probably need a true commitment if if we're gonna if we really want this to work. Yeah. But, um, but you know, we always think that we're going to be the different case. Because and um,
0: what are they experiencing? The people that you had saw that are that are staying home when their significant others are being disappointed. What are they? What are they experiencing? What was what that look like?
1: Um, it was very individual, but definitely, um, a lot of, um, adjustment and change and depending on the person, uh, depending on the soldier, when they came home, they may come home very different. And so, and then like, I mean, I was given like the craziest advice as a, like a, a military wife like like and this was from other wives right because we all washed out for each other and so it was like um, like like if you're after your husband gets home if he's having a nightmare don't try to wake him up mm-hmm. go across the room and throw a shoe at him oh. to wake him up because he is probably having a nightmare mm-hmm. and will wake up in in, a, in an aggressive response so we were given these ways to like support our husbands and like, you know, care for them in the middle of all of this stress. But it was also uh, extremely difficult and, and, and I, at the time I didn't know, but, and can be very dangerous. And so, um, so that's part of what I want to, the message that I want to get out too is like the confusion when you're dealing with someone who is stricken with severe PTSD and you love them and you're wanting to support them through that but they are having flashbacks and they are having these these moments of dissociation and you know and keeping yourself safe like the balance of that is extremely difficult and I don't have the answers but I I can I can I empathize with it and and I think what what I think is really important is is kind of like the weather and the wildlife in Alaska is to respect, mm. to respect it yeah. and to understand that it can be very dangerous. And, um, and so, and as we get into my story further, of course, that'll become more clear. But, um, but I wish, I wish I had had more guidance around what we were dealing with, okay. um, because, because I don't feel like we really did. So,
0: and, and to, so that I could understand and share this a little bit, so it's a little bit more clear, when you had met him, he had already been deployed to Afghanistan for for how long?
1: No, he actually hadn't. He um he was it's fresh out of basic training. Mm. So this was his first deployment and it was his first experience with the military. But he, um, and, and I, I'm by no way diagnosing anything, but just after the conversations and after, you know, um, loving him and being married with him, I would say that his experiences in Cuba, being born and raised in Cuba, I think that he had some traumatic experiences there that were really affecting him in his adult life as well. And they weren't necessarily recognized, and definitely not um, consciously in a, uh, approached with awareness. Yeah. And so, and and so, I came from a background of trauma here in the U.S. He came from a background of trauma in Cuba, and then he moved to the U.S. when he was twenty, and was in Miami until he was in twenty-seven. Until he was twenty-seven. So he, though he had never been deployed before, he certainly had known trauma.
0: Okay. So then, you guys are together, uh, in the beginning supporting you, your career, your interests, your independence. Can you walk me a little bit further about as the relationship continued to progress?
1: Yeah. So because he was going to be deployed within the year, but we didn't know when. So literally he was going to get a phone call and he was going to be told you're shipping out in three days, four days, whatever. So it was completely unknown. His whole life was on eggshells waiting for this call. He knew he was going, he didn't know when. We decided given the circumstances and that we were really committed to the relationship and being together no matter what. And we were not, you know, like spring chickens, like 27, 29, 30, like we had had some life experience and we felt like we were ready to make that judgment call. So we actually got married six months after we met. We did a very simple um, ceremony and in Alaska. Um, anyone can become an officiant for one ceremony. It's kind of like being on a ship because <laughs> there was such limited population. So, so my stepdad became the officiant mm. and, and he married us over dinner one night. Mm. And so the vows were complete and we were officially husband and wife. And it was about four months later when he finally got that call. And was shipped off to Afghanistan, and I would say before he left, there was a slight change after we got married, and it was literally kind of like when it happened that he uh, became much less supportive of how independent I was. He wanted me to be more available at home. He wanted me to spend more time with him, one on one, and um, and I I am very stubborn. <laughs> so, you like your independence. I did not, you, you like not Yeah, your... I did not make that concession. I definitely dedicated a lot of time to him and I encouraged mm-hmm. him to spend time with his friends and to go out and do things. Um, and I later discovered that there's two things culturally that I didn't know or understand. And one of them is that in Cuban culture, the partnership is very um, like central like if you're in a partnership, you do everything together. And and that is the norm there. Like the, the guys don't go and hang out by themselves and the girls don't go and hang out by themselves. They hang out as couples and that's what they know and that's what they like. And it was actually, when we actually did have a wedding ceremony, we got married years after we were officially wed. We, we had a full ceremony in Miami. And I wanted to do a bachelorette and a bachelor event where the guys split off and did something and the girls split off and did something. And then we would all come together at the end of the evening. He was not interested in that at all. Like like I had to force him to do that because I wanted my time with my girls. But he was just like, no, why do we need to be apart? Let's just hang out together. That's the best way. So there was that cultural component. And then the other cultural component is that pre-married life and post-married life is very different. And so he had an expectation that when we actually did get married, that things would change. And I didn't know that. So there were two things that were really working against um, like a congruent understanding of where our relationship was headed.
0: Yeah. And so in that time, when you're starting to notice a shift, are these what does that look like within where you guys are living? Are they arguments? Is there yelling? Is there anything physical? What does that look like when you're getting into the real conversations of what a marriage is supposed to be to him, what his needs are? Was he able to vocalize that? What were you hearing? What were you experiencing?
1: I would say he had a hard time putting his needs into words, partially because he had to do it in English, I think. Um, But also just generally, I think it was difficult for him to verbalize it effectively. And other than like he, the way that it would show up was that when I did something that he didn't like, he would get emotional about it. And before he left for deployment, uh, there might be a little bit of an argument, but there wasn't yelling. We would just kind of like, like he'd be like, "I don't want you to go dancing," and I'd say, "Well, I'm gonna go dancing. Do you want to come with me, or do you want me to come home? You know, by whatever time." Like this is this is this is the arrangement. I'm not going to give up my dancing, and so. There was definitely some like, you know, well, you know, I don't like this, but which was, it seemed very normal to me. And then I would say he wanted me to get pregnant right away, which was not in my plan. Um, Although I did want to have children, I wanted to wait a little while um, into the marriage. And that was something that he really pressed for and really wanted. Uh, So that came up right away too, once we got married. Um, but again, it just would kind of come up in conversation and maybe there was a little bit of tension, but nothing notable. I mean, it was it, it was, was okay.
0: Yeah, there weren't there weren't these red flags or bells going off inside of you at that point before deployment that hey, what did I get myself into? Hey, I'm starting to get triggered from a survival standpoint. Was that was that going on for you?
1: No, absolutely not. And and the thing about us Um, was that we were very deeply in love. I mean, there's a reason why we were later in our 20s and decided to get married so quickly. Both of us had been in significant relationships before and we had not decided to take that step there was something really different about the way that we felt about each other. It was kind of like um, this experience of like, no matter what comes up, we're going to be able to get through it. And we actually had that conversation when we were trying to decide, you know, should we wait until you get back from deployment or should we get married before you go? And I was actually the one that was concerned about not being married both because I knew that it was going to be highly stressful and I, I knew that I... Being back at home and safe and in my comfort zone and in my support zone and in my career, it might seem easier to give up on the relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, while he's gone for a year. Or uh, the other part of that was just that if anything were to happen to him, I would have no legal rights to the information. Mm -hmm. And so I was really concerned that if he were to get injured or even get killed, that I wouldn't necessarily get notified. And that terrified me, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I just couldn't imagine. So, um, so we we decided to take that step and no i would say that there weren't any i mean there were definitely like he he definitely would get jealous um and so we we worked through that a lot it was a red flag but i didn't recognize it as a red flag but in general before he left you know we were so in love and we were just trying to make the relationship work and going through the bumps that happen when you're trying to bring two lives into one, you know.
0: You know you're focusing on the future. We're gonna make it. He's gonna go away for a year, and then he finally does get deployed and comes back. Did he share with you what his experience was like? How did you learn about what he had gone through?
1: He he did not talk much. Um, uh, he told me about where he was stationed. So and that was that was unique, actually to a lot of the soldiers in Afghanistan. He was placed in a very small fob in the middle of nowhere. It was called Balo. And there were only about 30 soldiers that were stationed there, American soldiers. So they're in the middle of nowhere. They're open on all sides and they have to be airlifted in to get there. And then they're dropped off and then they're just there. (laughs) And so... So he he was in a very extreme environment while deployed. And when he was there, uh, they took live fire constantly. Uh, Obviously, they're like this wide open target in the middle of nowhere. And so they were constantly taking live fire. Um, And I saw some videos of that. And what that looked like mostly was like flashing lights in the dark because it was dark out. But definitely you know, fighting for their lives on a daily basis. And he had a calendar that he kept. Actually, (laughs) one of the things that I did was I made him a calendar with pictures of us. So each month had something and then all of the significant dates of our relationship so far, all the little anniversaries and everything. I notated those and so I sent that to him in a care package and he brought that home with him and he had, every time they took live fire, he would put a circle in that date box. And some of them were like circle, 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 like to tiny, tiny little circles because they were literally under fire all night long. And then and then I didn't hear from him for about a month and a half at one point and I had no idea what was going on, no ability to contact him. He had to call me mm. and... um. And it turned out that their their computer room had been blown up by a rocket. Wow. <laughs> so they had to get new equipment airlifted in in order to get that set up again and get it all managed. So, yeah, I mean, it was, he was a, in a very extreme environment there.
0: I would say so. And for you, being on the other end of that in Fairbanks, a month and a half of time goes by without a word what's what's going through your mind what are you experiencing
1: i was focusing on my work and i was focusing on my just keeping my life as normal as possible here i asked my i had one friend who had been a military wife for 10 years and her husband eventually went into special forces, actually. And I asked her advice, and I said, "What do I do? Like, what? What if if you could go back and tell yourself this is what you need to do? Well, for the first deployment, what do I do?" And she said, "Don't listen to the news. Don't make any assumptions. Just wait, because they will let you know if something happens. And so you're just going to drive yourself crazy. Just think that everything is fine. Think that there's a tactic." difficulty, mm-hmm. just, just deal with it that way. And then if there is something really to worry about, then you will be officially notified. And so I took her advice to heart and I did not pay attention to the news. I actually separated myself from the military community to a very large extent because I already had an, an incredible support system. I was in my hometown. I had family, I had friends, I had careers. So I really wasn't feeling like I needed to be Intimately connected with the military community for support. And what that did is it allowed me to not hear the rumors. So I actually stayed outside of all of the rumors and all of the different ideas that people were tossing around. And then I had a couple of close girlfriends that had the experience of being military wife and they, they were there for me to go and talk to and, and, and they empathized with my experiences. So I would say that overall, the experience while he was deployed and even that month and a half when I didn't hear mm-hmm. from him, it was, very, it was as good as it could get. And then I did eventually hear from him, and he was just like he called me. I think at three in the morning, and that was like the thing. I slept with my phone. <laughs> never did I ever have my phone not on me. It was always on me because I never knew when he was going to call, and if he did, I never knew when he was going to be able to call oh back. Gosh. So it's three in the morning, my phone rings, and I'm like, oh, I'm like so excited, you know. And and he was like, baby, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He's like, we had a. Slight difficulty. Just a slight difficulty. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. But everything's back up now. We got it all going. Everything's cool. Everybody's okay. Nobody's hurt.
0: (laughs) You remember that conversation, huh?
1: Oh, I could not. I was just waiting every day to hear from him. Every day. Is it going to be the day? Is it going to be the day, you know?
0: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode with Lisa Marie and we're going to pick it up right here next week for the second part of the three-part series with Lisa Marie. See you then.